Hi, welcome back to Bullet Points. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Bill Durston, President of Americans Against Gun Violence. Dr. Durston is a former Marine, marksman, and emergency physician who served in the Vietnam War and founded Americans Against Gun Violence in 2016. Americans Against Gun Violence is an advocacy organization which coordinates activism, puts out incredibly detailed press releases on gun violence topics, and is one of the most influential advocacy organizations in firearm legislation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Durston. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, just to start off with the general question, uh, what is the work of Americans Against Gun Violence? What, at the most basic level, does the organization do in its fight? And what was the motiva motivation behind founding it? Okay, that's a great question. Well, first of all, our, we are founded on the belief that uh, people in the United States, our society has not only the ability, uh, but the uh, moral obligation to reduce rates of gun deaths and injuries in the United States to levels comparable to other high-income democratic countries. So that would be, mean uh, reducing gun deaths by a factor of 10, because the rate of gun deaths in the United States is 10 times the higher, 10 times the average for other high-income democratic countries. So how do we seek to achieve that? Well, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so we can't uh, make contributions to political candidates or advocate individual candidates. And we can only do a certain amount of political lobbying. So we focus on education. And what we're trying to do is educate both the general public and policymakers concerning the fact that there's no mystery uh, why we have all these mass shootings. There's no mystery why our rate of gun deaths is 10 times higher than the international average. The answer is very obvious. Um, we're an extreme outlier in terms of the laxity of our gun control laws, the number of privately owned guns in circulation. And there's a direct relationship between guns per capita, uh, lax gun control laws and gun deaths. And uh, along the same lines, there's no mystery what we need to do to solve the problem, to curb our, or stop our epidemic of gun violence. We need to adopt stringent gun control laws like those in all the other high-income democratic countries. Um, at the most basic level, we need to change the presumption uh, for someone seeking to acquire a gun that you can have the gun unless the government can prove you're on a list of people prohibited to the guiding policy in every other high-income democratic country. You first have to show a good reason to have a gun uh, and that you can handle one safely. And then only then is a background check. And we need to respond to mass shootings like other high-income democratic countries. Great Britain, Australia, and New Zealand, after mass shootings committed with uh, so-called assault rifles, they banned all automatic and semi-automatic long guns. Great Britain, after mass shooting uh, in an elementary school committed with handguns, they banned all handguns. Um, the rate of gun deaths in Great Britain is currently 1 60th the rate in the United States. So that's the principle we're founded on and we're working now through educating people and policymakers and trying to get uh, individual citizens to be their own lobbyists to demand of our elected officials that we adopt gun control laws like those in other high-income democratic countries. What are some efforts by Americans against gun violence that you've seen to be particularly successful? Well, obviously we haven't stopped the epidemic. <laughs> um, and I can't point to uh, a single law that we've been able to get passed. Uh, and we can talk about this later, but unfortunately the types of laws that are being considered now are so weak um, 
maybe they will be a, a, would be a baby step in the right direction. But we have reached out to a lot of people and are making them aware of the fact that, that I just discussed that it's crystal clear why we have such a high rate of gun deaths, why we have mass shooting after mass shooting. Um, so we have succeeded in talking to a lot of people and you're contributing to our success here by helping expand uh, the uh, or spread the message. Um, and our high school essay contest, I'd say, has been one of um, our successes. Um, after the Parkland mass shooting in 2018, uh, we decided to offer an essay contest for high school students on the topics of gun violence. And we've gotten a lot of uh, extremely poignant, moving, thoughtful uh, essays from high school students. So helping spread the word among high school students uh, that way. Yeah. Um, can you talk more about the idea of a high school essay contest for gun violence? Um, are there any essays that you've read that you had, you know, have had particularly meaning to you? And uh, how did you guys come up with this idea as well, just in general? You know, it's such an inventive idea to, to combat gun violence, to have uh, high schoolers so so engaged in this way. Yeah. Um, well, I have been uh, chairing the high school essay contest for the Sacramento chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Uh, for 17 years. We started that contest way back in 2005 when we realized that um, for every year the high school graduating seniors had been in high school, the United States had been involved in a war of our own making in Afghanistan or Iraq. And so we used a quote from John F. Kennedy, uh, war will exist until that distant day when the um, conscientious objector enjoys the same reputation and prestige as the warrior does today to stimulate high school students to look at our invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan from a different light. So anyway, we've been doing that for 17 years. We did a gun control quote one year, and it just happened to be in December of 2000, early in December 2012, we decided to use a gun control quote. A couple of days later, the Sandy Hook mass shooting uh, occurred. Um, but PSR focuses more on the nuclear weapons issue. Um, so we decided to, after the Parkland mass shooting, and when students were uh, being interviewed um, nationwide and you know demanding an end to the gun violence problem, uh, that's when we decided to offer the essay contest to Americans against gun through Americans against gun violence as well. And that's a national organization, whereas PSR Sacramento is just a, a local organization. The first year, um, we used a prompt a quote. Um, from a Senator Thomas Dodd from Connecticut, who said, pious condolences will no longer suffice, quarter measures and half measures will no longer suffice. Now is the time to adopt stringent gun control laws like those in every other civilized country. Trouble that quote is, it was from 1968, and we haven't followed his advice. And six, nine, since 1968, more U.S. civilians have died of gunshot wounds than all the U.S. civilians, uh, than all the U.S. soldiers and all the wars we've ever been involved. But it's, I, um, it's hard to sing out one single essay, but the essays from the high school students are so poignant um, on topics. Well, many of them, some of them were present during mass shootings. Um, many of them have lost friends to gunshot wounds. Um, students talk about just how ludicrous these um, lockdown drills are. Um, talk about things like uh, a teacher uh, saying that they're going to attack the shooter with scissors or a baseball bat or something like that. And the psychological trauma that causes, causes have, having to go through these drills. 
and the feeling that they've been betrayed by or, or uh, members of society, and basically my generation and younger generations that should have solved this problem long ago and shouldn't be requiring students to crawl under their desks prepare for a mass shooting incident. If you go to the Americans Against Gun Violence uh, website, there's a high school essay contest page, and you could read the uh, essays of the winners from this year and from previous years on that uh, webpage. We give out $15,000 plus, by the way, uh, every year uh, to uh, 12 or more winners. Yeah. It is really, I mean, it, it's really an incredible, an incredible thing that you guys do. And, and for the sake of the listeners, I'll, I'll say that I, I did participate as well in the essay contest, and it was a, a very gratifying experience for myself. Um, I wanted to ask you personally about your experiences as a marksman in the Marine Corps and serving in Vietnam, and if or how that may have impacted your perspective on gun violence and legislation in America. Yeah, um, well, when I was graduating from high school for reasons I won't go into, and I don't quite understand myself, I think. This was right at the height of the US involvement in the war in Vietnam. Uh, I volunteered for the Marines. And uh, <clears throat> part of basic training was uh, shooting a rifle, and I'd done some shooting uh, before then. But anyway, I qualified as an expert marksman. And then I was uh, signed in Vietnam to a third force recon company, a ground reconnaissance uh, thing. Um, but anyway, so I spent time in a war zone um, and, you know, where you carried a rifle to protect yourself and, you know, assault the enemy. Um, so I found what it's like to live in a war zone. I found what it's like when guns are going off all around you and incoming artillery and so on and so forth. And when I got back to the United States, I was very glad not to be in a war zone anymore. I don't want, I don't think any reasonable person wants to live in a war zone. Um, but then I became an emergency physician. And during my training, my career, I saw innumerable uh, gunshot victims. I learned that every two years, more U.S. civilians are killed by guns in the United States than all the U.S. soldiers killed in the entire 11-year Vietnam War. Um, so then I saw the gun violence problem from another point of view, and it was just you know, impossible for me to uh, ignore it. So I worked on it for many years with a variety of other organizations, medical organizations, and like Brady campaign and things like that. When I started out, it seemed clear to me, handguns account for the vast majority of all gun deaths in our country. Uh, having or carrying a handgun provides no net protective value. It's much more likely to harm or injure uh, the owner or family members than to protect them. Um, so it seemed like the obvious thing to do is ban handguns. But right off the bat, I was told, no, that's not politically correct. We have to talk about common sense gun laws, so on and so forth. So I kind of went along with that approach for a while and then finally said, no, that defies common sense to do anything other than what other high income democratic countries have done, including banning handguns like Great Britain. And because I couldn't find another national organization that would take on the, take that uh, point of view, that's why we founded Americans Against Gun Violence in 2016. Yeah. Um, speaking towards those those policies that you say, you know, are, are not enough. Um, a few months ago, you wrote a message in response to President Biden's proposals on limiting gun violence. Um, can you share with listeners who may not have read that message a little more about your thoughts around Biden's plan? What are Biden's proposals and, and would they be enough? Yeah, um, you know, he gave a uh, speech and it was you know, an impassioned uh, speech uh, back in uh, 
April, I always believe, after we had this uh, rash of mass shootings, uh, one after another. Um, and so he said, you know, we're going to take definitive action to stop it. And I think the first thing he mentioned was uh, reining in ghost guns. Uh, a ghost gun is basically a gun without a serial number. Well, the number of gun-related deaths committed by guns without serial numbers um, is infinitesimally small fraction of all the gun deaths in our country. Um, some of these guns can be assembled at home from parts of the internet, that type of thing. And certainly, um, you know, those should be illegal, but they count for such a tiny fraction of the firearm-related deaths. Um, he talked about uh, a federal extreme risk protection order bill. Under an extreme risk protection order, uh, the states to have them in effect, if you feel that a family member has a gun and is extreme risk of hurting himself or someone else, um, then you can go through this process, which is somewhat cumbersome, to have law enforcement come out and possibly remove the gun temporarily. Well, there was a study of the use of these extreme risk protection orders in California over a three-year period. And through these extreme risk protection orders, something like 56 guns were temporarily removed over a three-year period. More than 3 million guns were sold. And most of those were sold to people who in any other high-income democratic country would never be able to buy a gun. So again, it's such a tiny step uh, toward ending the gun violence epidemic that you know, okay, well, maybe it should be done, but we need to go so much farther than that. I uh, talked about renewing a federal assault weapons ban. Um, we had an assault weapons ban in effect from uh, 1994 to 2004, but that ban was written in such a way to find assault weapons in such a narrow manner that the gun lobby was able to make equally lethal guns or more lethal guns that evaded the definition. Plus, it grandfathered in every other, uh, all those so-called assault weapons that were already owned. So it was effective. It was minimally effective at all. What we need to do is like England or the UK, Great uh, New Zealand and Australia, we need to ban all automatic and semi-automatic long guns with no grandfather clause, meaning people will have to turn them in for compensation and they'll be destroyed. Um, there were a couple other measures along those lines, but the things he, were he was advocating were such baby steps um, that just shows, um, actually, the, Josh Sugarman, uh, who's executive director of the Violence Policy Center, wrote in a book, Every Handgun is, Banned, is Aimed at You, back in uh, 2000 or 2001. Uh, he said that the other gun violence organizations uh, are so constrained by their own views of political correctness that they nibble around the edges of half measures and good intentions vastly out of sync with the reality of gun violence in our country. And I would say that that characterizes uh, President Biden's speech as well, as well intended as it might have been. Are there any politicians or any um, other organizations other than you that are advocating these, these real big picture fundamental um, changes in gun legislation that you think would be enough? Yeah, and as I say, uh, Americans Against Gun Violence grew in part out of the local work we're doing through our Sacramento chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. But other than PSR Sacramento, the answer to that question is no. And it's not for lack of effort, let me tell you. But that's 
like I uh, mentioned before, why we formed Americans Against Gun Violence 2016, working with other organizations, couldn't get them on board. And now I meet, uh, used to meet in person, now we meet via Zoom with the leaders of these other organizations about once a month. And I continue to try to get them on board and so far no one will join us. Um, I mentioned the mass shooting in Dunblane, Scotland. Um, it was in 20, uh, it was in 1996. And a man who legally owned handguns because he was a member of a shooting club um, killed 16 children and a teacher, uh, their first graders, I believe, in the Dunblane Primary School. Um, one of the students killed was Sophie North, and it was uh, Dr. Michael North's only daughter. Uh, his wife had died two years earlier of cancer, but he wrote a book, Dunblane, Never Forget. So we've been in touch, and actually, we were going to bring him to the United States. Um, last year, but we weren't able to because of the COVID pandemic to be a keynote speaker. But people should read this book, Dunblane, Never Forget. Um, the mass shooting at the Dunblane Primary School accounted for half of all the gun murders in the entire country in 1986. But they didn't look at it as though, you know, this is just a small number. They said, this is unacceptable. Um, and this uh, small group of grieving parents with other community support. Despite a, a gun lobby in, in Great Britain that opposed them, got a complete ban on handguns passed within two years. There hasn't been a single mass shooting since. As I said, the rate of gun deaths in Great Britain is 160th the rate in the United States. So I can't find a, a strong advocate in the United States so far, but we certainly have allies in other countries and also uh, uh, had keynote speakers from Australia, uh, Rebecca Peters, Philip Alperson, and so on. I, I certainly hope that we'll be able to um, be on the same level as other high-income democracies. Um, I know you mentioned the handgun ban, um, but in terms of uh, recent steps, and I know you've also mentioned some of the uh, the smaller sort of baby steps that you wrote. But what do you see as you know the possible um, path towards uh, being on the same level as other high-income democracies? Um, do you think that generally we will be able to be on the same level as other high-income democracies in terms of our rate of gun death? Starting with your last question, yes. I am certain someday that we will stop our shameful epidemic of gun violence by adopting stringent gun control like every other high-income democratic country has had for years. The only question is uh, how many more innocent people, including innocent children and youth, we're going to die of gunshot wounds before that day arrives. And the question for each of us uh, as individuals is, which side of history are we going to be on? The side that makes that day come sooner or the side that makes that day that delays uh, that? And so as far as baby steps, this is an example of a baby step. Um, maybe not so big, depending on how many, how many million viewers you have on your podcast. but letting people know that this is this is absolutely outrageous that we allow this to continue and particularly uh, many of us thought after the sandy hook massacre where at least 20 totally innocent children plus six teachers and the shooter's mother were were massacred that we did nothing um so it's when there's enough public outrage to say that this has to stop that's when it will stop there's a quote from Abraham Lincoln, which I'll just paraphrase, but he said that um, those who change public opinion have more influence than those who 
make laws or pass judgments on laws, uh, because without public sentiment, uh, laws cannot be made and, and they will not be interpreted properly. So it's when we as society say, this is outrageous, it's unacceptable. Uh, President Biden used the term an international embarrassment, um, but I'd say it's, it's far worse than that. Uh, when enough of say, no, you know, you, any elected leader must openly advocate uh, and do everything within his or her power to enact stringent gun control in the United States comparable to the laws in other high-income democratic countries. Um, finally, speaking to a younger audience, how do you see gun violence affecting people and policies in the future? Are we trending in the right direction? Uh, what should young people be concerned about? And how can they get involved in gun violence activism if they'd like to? Uh, we're definitely trending in the wrong direction. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the rate of gun deaths keeps going up. Um, official data isn't out for 2020 yet, but the unofficial data, data from Gun Violence Archive uh, uh, indicates that 2020 is probably the worst year in U.S. history for gun deaths with over uh, 44,000 uh, gun deaths. The, uh, after Parkland, you know, students were very um, uh, outspoken, um, but they didn't have a clear-cut house. They said, we need to stop gun violence. Um, they did stigmatize politicians who took uh, donations from the gun lobby. I think they were successful in doing that. But the most tangible outcome that you can uh, see from, uh, you know, the the movement after Parkland Mass shooting was they changed the age at which you can get an AR-15 in Florida from 18 to 21. It's like, you know, other countries would find that laughable. And then if you follow the trajectory, some of the most outspoken um, students, one in particular uh, who I talked to in person, David Hope, they started with a sense of outrage and with demanding definitive action and then gradually they were what I would say domesticated. And they talk about expanding background checks, banning ghost guns, extremist protection. So what I would say to students is don't let yourself think that this is the status quo is acceptable. Don't think that it's acceptable for US students to be the only students in the civilized world that have to go through lockdown drills. Demand definitive solutions. We haven't talked about the Second Amendment. We'll just throw that in briefly. Don't let anybody fool you and say the Second Amendment prevents any of the kind of legislation I've talked about. Prior to 2008, there was no Second Amendment right for anybody to own any kind of a gun outside of service in a well-regulated militia. Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia be necessary to the security of free state. Right of people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. Clearly, Second Amendment was intended to arm the militia. Well, at best, the Second Amendment is an anachronism. Um, we don't have time to discuss it. It's probably actually worse than that. But it wasn't until the rogue 2008 Heller decision, a five to four decision that the Supreme Court ruled that there was any kind of Second Amendment right, individual right to own a gun. So the Heller decision needs to be overturned. We don't have to repeal the Second Amendment. But don't let anybody claim that they are uh, more of a patriot than you because they, quote, support the Second Amendment. I'd ask them, which version do you support? The original version talks about well-regulated militia or the gun lobby's version basically eliminates the first half of the Second Amendment. 
I know it was described as the uh, the greatest fraud on the American people, wasn't it? I know that was one of the justices' description of it. We actually had a, um, a constitutional scholar on the podcast a couple episodes ago who talked about this as well. Yeah, and the Heller decision, or the majority opinion written by Antonin Scalia, there's no complex legal theory in there. It is um, gross distortions of historical facts, uh, circular reasoning, it's mockery, sarcasm. It is an enormous embarrassment. You don't have to be a constitutional scholar to read the Heller decision and realize that that is a bunch of work. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Durson. Thank you, Sebastian. It was an honor. Thank you for what you're doing.